you are sending messages without realizing it. And so what by going in, especially, you know, as young as kindergarten and saying, this is how let's role model, let's role play all these different interactions that we need to like everyone to be friends with everyone. You end up driving that passive aggressive tendency to keep my real feelings secret even deeper because everything's exposed. Now you take the aggressive tendencies and you make them bigger. So what we have now is we have an orientation towards group identity, group membership, and a kind of repressive tolerance that says you, the individual and your boundaries and your needs are nothing compared to what you owe the group. You have to go past tolerating, like peacefully coexisting with those people you don't like. You must do your best every single day to be friends with them, to ally with them, to support them, to validate them. And it's a lot to ask. It's just too much. We as adults wouldn't tolerate it. You wouldn't put up with that. But kids are forced to put up with that every single day in our schools right now. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Deb Philman. She's a former educator and a private tutor, as well as a host of the YouTube channel and podcast, The Reason We Learn, uh, which is also a blog on Substack. Uh, Deb's focus is all about the education system in America, what's broken about it, and what we can do about it. I'm excited to pick her brain and understand the complexities of her concerns and the concerns of many of the people she knows about the school system. Deb, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. I'm really glad to be here. All right. So let's dive in. What is broken? with the American school system? Number one, I would say is that it is not child focused. It's not focused on children as the most important uh, people involved in the system. And I, and I don't mean in terms of, you know, pampering. I mean, just as this being their childhood, they're spending, they're developing minds that are being exposed to whatever's going on there. Um, you know, their development of social and emotional skills. We hear a lot about it, but it's not so much focused on them. And I think that's really at the, that's really the crux of it, that they are treated more like a kind of raw material or a, a product than they are the receivers or the consumers or the, you know, um, just human individuals. If I, if I really to sum it up, that's what it is. So yeah, what are some are of the, what are some of the specific ways that the way we do education in this country 
does not match the actual developmental needs of children? Well, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that because so few people seem to be asking that question when they look at what's going on in schools. Um, For starters, I see too much going on in schools that seems to have regressed back to a time when we didn't understand, well, when we hadn't even heard of Piaget, when we didn't understand that children go through different developmental phases. And whether you agree or lockstep with Piaget, at least most of us agreed that there were stages, that children are not born miniature adults. They're not just smaller versions of us. They are fundamentally different creatures, and they're going through these different stages at their own individual pace. There's not really a hard line that says at this age, this will happen. At this other age, this will happen. You've got a pretty broad range. And when you have to standardize education, as we do in America, for a wide variety of reasons, I mean, you have standardized government paid for government delivered education, you create a single system for millions of little rapidly developing individuals going at their own pace. So you can see already there's a conflict just at the outset. And what happens is the system requires the individual to conform to the system. The system is quite inflexible and the bigger it gets and the more requirements it has, the more oversight it needs to have because it's spending tax dollars the more people who are employed by it and so forth, the the incentives stack up on the side of the adults and not on the side of the children. So they're walking into a setting at the age of six or so, six or seven, that is geared to the adults and not to them. And it becomes readily apparent to them, even in their primitive minds <laughs> um, and abilities to conceptualize, that they have to go at its pace. And so that that's one of the ways, just right away, the whole thing's standardized. So we are not taking into account their developmental phases. Now let's get to the specifics. In elementary school, what I'm seeing is less of a focus on the newness of the child in terms of being a concrete thinker, being a person who needs to make sense of the world and to feel that the world can make sense, okay? So that's a tough nut to crack. People take it for granted that whatever they're saying to a child makes sense. It doesn't necessarily. And if you present ideas to a child that do not match what they see with their eyes or they, you know, what they experience with their five senses, um, it, it adds to their confusion. So increasingly, I'm seeing higher order concepts presented to children under the guise of social and emotional learning exercises, asking really deeply personal questions they may not even understand. I'm seeing some signs of operant conditioning going on where students are being explicitly taught at young ages to question their five senses and question their their gut instincts and their own sense of personal safety. And I don't think that's benign um, in large part because developmentally, they will follow what the people in authority tell them to do because their number one priority is stay safe. Their number one priority is, I mean, I'm not with my parents. I'm in an other environment with other people. So it's a survival skill. I have to stay safe. And if the people in power over me tell me to do X, I do X. And that's disrespectful of the fact that they are emotionally vulnerable. They're intellectually and cognitively new. You know, it's all new. And their ability to conceptualize and ask questions is limited, not just by the vocabulary, but also by the the role that they're in. They're in a subservient role. 
And so that's at the elementary level. As you get into the middle school level, then I see it changing where now they obviously do have more questions about where they fit in, but they're in a push me, pull you game. They're not quite ready yet to completely differentiate from the family of origin. They're not quite ready yet to be on their own emotionally or cognitively, but they're flexing those muscles. And what I'm seeing in the education world is they're jumping ahead and grabbing hold of the smallest sign that the child is moving towards adulthood to say they're there. They can make adult decisions. They can self-diagnose with conditions. They're saying that now of elementary school students too, but especially in middle school, they're definitely diving in on those ninth graders at age 13 and saying they're as good as adult, but they're absolutely not as good as adult. In fact, they may be less capable of tuning into that natural voice inside that says, beware, than the elementary school kid is because they have that push me, pull you going on if they want to pull away. So they might be inclined to go towards an adult that says, it's safe, come over here pull away from family, go over to the peer relationship, come to me and do what I say, they're going to be more inclined to do it at that age and now add hormones. So I see adults, especially starting in middle grade, starting to almost take advantage. I see it that way. I see it as a little bit exploitative, taking advantage of a natural stage they're going through, but disrespecting that they're not through it. And of course we get to high school and now they're being treated as full blown adults. Um, and they are being encouraged to take action, political action, that is far and away beyond their cognitive ability in terms of, you know, they might be very bright, but they couldn't possibly have lived long enough or experienced real life, bill paying, working in a job, all those kinds of things, long enough to make the kinds of decisions and take the kind of stance that they're being encouraged to take in the real world as far as political activism. So at every stage, they are violating the child's developmental phase, cognitive ability, emotional standing. And I haven't even touched on whether the child has any learning delay or any you know, other kinds of trauma in their life or mental health concerns, if they're autistic or ADD, that adds a whole other dimension that might be violated because they're treated as all the same. Wow. Okay. So much to revisit there. I'm going to try to hold on to my thoughts in response to middle and high school. I want to go back to the beginning. So you talk about how it's developmentally inappropriate to introduce certain abstract concepts to concrete thinkers when kids are still developing their psychomotor skills, their sensory awareness, and they're learning through those embodied processes. And you're saying that increasingly the educational system for young children is not working with that developmental need and nurturing those skills, but it's trying to to kind of push children to be able to understand concepts that are too abstract for them. So uh, I have recently become a big fan of the work of Leonard Sachs. Um, his book, Why Gender Matters, is incredible. I'm currently um, making my way through his book, Boys Adrift. And he talks about these different types of learning and uses concepts that are better understood using other languages. So, you know, in English, we have this one verb to know, but in Spanish, right, there's saber and conocer. 
um, which are easier for me to say and be familiar with in the German words he used in the book, which I'm going to butcher if I try to say, say them, but they're something like Kentnis and Wissenschaft or something like that. But ah, well, I used to speak German, so I know the difference. You know what I'm talking Okay. And you can, yeah, you can so pronounce one is them more properly. Like awareness and mm-hmm. one is more like wisdom or understand, like a deeper understanding, almost like scientific understanding. So right. they're completely different. Right. So there's one type of knowledge that's like, do you know arithmetic or do you know who was the first president of the United States, right? Do you know a fact or have you learned a procedure? That's that's one question. But do you know something in the sense of do you grok it? Do you understand it in an embodied way? And so he talks about how in Germany, there's this... Um, it's normal to have these outdoor schools for very young children where they're outdoors year round. They call it forest school. And they spend their days just smelling trees and playing in leaves and watching tadpoles. And he talks about how it's so important to cultivate that sense of wonder that mm. leads, you know, with your natural curiosity to want to understand wow, how does that tadpole become a frog? But Increasingly, in American schools, you see kids who have never played in a pond with tadpoles, never seen them before, and they're being taught the life cycle of a frog as if they're supposed to care, and it's this abstract, disembodied concept. And I recall learning from this book that the children who had this early exposure to the outdoors and to learning the world through their senses and cultivating that natural curiosity that results from that actually had higher scores years down the line when it came to reading comprehension and things like that. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Well, I completely agree. I haven't read the book, but that absolutely, you know, aligns with what I have seen in my teaching experience and also raising three children. Um, That the more, because they are concrete thinkers and because they use their five senses to experience the world, the more they can be in touch with reality in that way, uh, the, as you said, the more curious they are and the better questions they ask. And when children are do, doing things like that and asking those questions, they learn about autonomy. So the, the, it just goes with the territory. You understand that your perception of reality and then the ability to ask a question is how you get knowledge, how you get educated. You very quickly realize at a deep level that your education is yours. It belongs to you. It's not a bunch of stuff that's housed in a teacher's brain or inside a school building or inside a bunch of books that then has to be given to you. So rather than being a passive recipient of knowledge or learning or even maturity, you are making it. You are actually experiencing learning and owning the learning because you get to observe Children are natural born scientists. What you're describing is the scientific method. And I believe that I've watched babies, they come into this world hardwired to do this process. And I firmly believe that our American education system interrupts that process most abruptly because of its sort of like industrial institutional shape and size and scope. And then the activities they do are geared towards, you know, like you said, it's book learning, it's inside a room, and there's not enough like experiential uh, education. But then now imagine it's not just let's talk about the life cycle of a tadpole, but let's talk about frog sex. (laughs) 
<laughs> like we're talking, I mean, or, or let's talk about, let's use the life cycle of the tadpole as a jumping off point to discuss gender and pronouns and what gender are you six-year-old and things like this, where it's just too much, too soon, too heavy and unnecessarily so. What is the child's imperative right now? Well, the child's imperative at six is not to define their identity for adults or even for other children. That's not, that's barely their their imperative in their teens. It's a process that goes on throughout your life. Like we're not really done, are we? <laughs> I'm 56 and I'm still like defining myself. So to make it, to make the adult imperative, the child's imperative is a gross violation of their boundaries and what you're describing with the forest school respects their boundaries. It respects the, what they're doing at that age, which is exploring. I love that idea. And I think that's really what school, yeah, I hate even the term school, but what learning and education should be is you're an experiential learner. You are a little scientist. You are trying to get acquainted with the reality in which you live. Let's go there. Let's visit that place and let you do that. And we will observe and guide and be there when you have a question as a facilitator. So not even a teacher, but as a facilitator of your learning, then you own it. And I love that because having that sense of autonomy is why those scores are higher. I really believe that. It's not that they're smarter. It's not that they've memorized more. It's that they feel responsible for their own mind and the development of it. I love this concept of being a facilitator, and it reminds me of the concept of scaffolding the development of skills. At first, you have to put a lot of infrastructure around and supply all the materials, but as those levels get built, you can step back more and more. And the more kind of Socratic approach to learning is you work with that curiosity, you work with the question someone's bringing, and then you ask another question to help their brain figure out how to problem solve. So kid comes to you, let's say, with a toy that's broken, and you might say, okay, what's your first thought about what the problem could be, right? So you don't point out what the problem is. You get them thinking. You examine their thought process and ask the questions that help them figure out how to ask the right questions to solve a problem. But what I see with kids who are taught that there's official knowledge and there's a right and wrong answer and you have to learn it in this order and learn towards the test is that they get to be young adults and they're like, okay, what's the answer? Or how do I fix it? And they haven't learned that process of problem solving. And I've often told young adults that I work with, you know, being an adult isn't about having the answers. It's about knowing that you can count on yourself to figure out how to solve a problem and what questions to ask, where to look for that knowledge. Exactly. And that, believe it or not, is extremely easy to facilitate in the elementary grades. And I think we do things exactly backwards in this country and we cut that off. And then we wonder why middle school is three years of hell. Why, you know, kids in high school are just, is this on the test? Is this going to be on the test? And then they cheat. And it's because, as you said, you know, there's this, this concept of, you know, a hegemonic curriculum and official knowledge and those sorts of things. Instead of saying, you know, education is, my learning process and becoming the kind of person who can learn, who can solve problems. It's not about a specific set of facts. That's not to say that we wouldn't want 
a child to be introduced to and even master things like the multiplication tables or to know that there's a correct and an incorrect way to spell words and so forth. But believe it or not, that stuff does come up. And when you're a facilitator, as I, you know, I uh, homeschooled my kids, my two eldest kids through like third grade. And that stuff comes up as they are experimenting and learning and they want to write something. So they write it. And then you come back in and you say, all right, now let's look at how that word is spelled so everyone else could read it and understand it. So you you do two things. You're correcting them, but it's not like you're wrong. It's the purpose of writing is communication so other people can understand what you're trying to say. That's why we have one way of spelling the word because we're trying to communicate. So you get fewer questions over time like, why do I need to know this? Who cares? What? It, why is this important? If it if the, the questions were generated by the student, they already know why you need to know it because they wanted to know it. <laughs> and then when you can dive deep into a subject and find out how it's applied or you're going out into the world, um, this came up. I was I was talking to my co-host on Tuesdays and we do a show about education without schooling. And we talked about spending a day with your kids in any grade, really winter storm comes up, let's say, or even a hurricane, and the power goes out. Let's get in the car and go out and find a lineman. Let's go drive around till we see a bucket. <laughs> you know, because very, especially in the south, we, we can see them when there's a big rainstorm. But if you're up north and you have, you know, that go look for somebody in a bucket or find out where you might see somebody working on fixing the power. And you can talk about that. What is he doing? Why is he doing it? Where does the power come from? You know, what does he have to fix? Um, why did it go out in the first place? How is the power made? So you could spend an entire week just figuring out why you lost power because of the storm. You could talk about the weather. You could talk about the source of power. You could talk about what other sources of power. There's so many ways you can get into it. But what does the child come away with? And by the way, this is a lesson you could do with you could have a seven-year-old. You could have a 17-year-old. You could have a 10-year-old all in the same room talking about it at different levels. And you come away with a deeper understanding of the world around you but also with some pretty important facts about how things work and they might take off and go from that into something else. So it's something we just don't do because we're creating a standardized measurable environment. We can't, we just, we can't do it. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. 
Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Mm-hmm. And even something that is as concrete as, as clearly right or wrong as multiplication tables, which are useful to just memorize. You know, I'm thinking about the math lessons I had as a kid. And I, I don't know how many word problems I've answered in my life where, you know, Johnny has six apples and seven buckets and, I, you know, whatever the story might be. But I can't recall in my own experience having any real life math problems to solve. Whereas I'm thinking about, you know, even a simple household project, like putting up string lights in our backyard and we're hanging them from beams on an awning, you know, well, okay, how, how many feet of string lights do we have? How far apart are they spaced? How many beams are there? And how long are those beams? Now we have a natural math problem where, you know, the more you have things like this that you're engaged with creating a project or whatever it might be, the more naturally you see how useful it would be if you could remember off the top of your head what four times four is. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that you can build things, you can cook, you can do so many things, and there are just very few opportunities anymore in the, the public school system, even to a large degree in private school systems, because they're becoming very regimented as well. Now, some people ask me, what I think of classical education. Classical education is more formal, regimented, et cetera. And here's what I have to say about that. I do think there is a cohort of students who benefit greatly from structured learning environments. They tend to be the students who live with just like no structure, chaos in the home, chaos in the rest of their life. And I think they are really well suited to an environment where it's predictable and the teachers serve as mentors and you know they, they represent stability, they represent something predictable and discipline standards that are going to be adhered to, things like that. We see this happen, uh, for example, in the Michaela School in London. Um, I've had Miss Snuffy, the, the headmistress, on a couple times on my channel, and her school is gets criticized for how much discipline she has, and yet her students who are the typically, you know, historically marginalized minority population students who come from lower income households, um, they do exceptionally well in her school and they love it there and they're very happy and they're performing, you know, above grade level compared to their, you know, same age cohorts in other schools and so forth. So the results kind of speak for themselves. And that's not to say that if you don't have a chaotic environment, you couldn't do well in a classical school, or that if you do, you would do poorly in a forest school. That's not really what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there, there can be a place for that. And it, I just think it should be up to the parents or it should be up to the caregiver if it's not a parent or you know something you, you deal with the student on a case-by-case basis, which is the case for her school. Those students apply to the school, they go to the school, it is public, but it's not just your zip code, you go here. And so what that tells me is that 
things work when they work for the child, for their specific circumstances. So it's not that it's the format all by itself that's bad. It's that it's the format and it's standardized across all the age groups, all types of kids based on something as arbitrary as zip code. And it's not a conversation that the family in question or even the people caring for that child, let's say it's a foster child or it's a child who's an orphan. So you're still going to probably have a therapist, a counselor, some people who are working with the child, get to know the individual child and say, this is the environment we think would work well for this individual child. And, and that's what's missing. That's really interesting. You bring up a good point about how structure itself can be especially grounding for kids who don't have structure at home. It doesn't mean that the way we do structure in every academic institution is the best way. Um, but that makes sense. And it reminds me a bit of my conversation with Michael D.C. Bowen. I think that was episode 16, um, as well as some of the things I've been learning uh, through Leonard Sachs's work, thinking about how um, young men who grow up like uh, in inner city neighborhoods where where they're rough um, and there's a lot of, you know, fighting and um, they actually respond better to teachers who are more sharp with them because they understand Mm -hmm. that there's a consequence because maybe in the home or the way things have been in their group, uh, consequences are communicated very severely. And, you know, we could speculate about how healthy that is, but the point is that if they go to a school and the teacher's really nice and soft-spoken and, okay, I'd like to see you get this assignment done. Will you please do it? They're like, no. I don't feel like it because it doesn't sound like a demand. It sounds like a a request that's optional. Um, So in that sense, too, I understand how you you have to match the students' cultural needs and maybe gender-specific needs as well. Um, I also learned in Leonard Sachs' book that girls have more sensitive hearing. And many boys who are suspected of having ADHD, if you test their hearing or if you look at where they're placed in the classroom, they often just need either to be placed closer to the teacher or they need the teacher to speak up. The average decibel level for what a girl needs her teacher's voice to be is lower than what the boy needs. And uh, when a teacher is speaking in a tone that's appropriate to get a boy's attention, the girl often feels that that's harsh or that she's being reprimanded. So there's, mm-hmm. there is a lot of variation depending on the individual, where they come from, you know, biological factors in terms of how much structure, discipline, what forms of discipline are going to be, uh, are going to help them thrive. Mm-hmm. Let's move on a little bit uh, to middle school, unless there was more you wanted to say on elementary. Not really, but I mean, just based on one thing you just said, uh, I, I like the fact that you brought up that there are differences, not just individual to individual, but the system, if you ask me what's another thing wrong with it, it's very geared towards the feminine. I mean, and by that, I mean, you know, what would be okay for girls, what works best for girls and doesn't necessarily work that well for boys. And that's across all classes and everything. It's just something that I would go out on a limb and say outright. Right. It, is, it oh. really is. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's let's actually talk about that some more. We'll get to middle school eventually, okay. or maybe it'll come up in the in the course of this. But I've been thinking about that a lot because Leonard Sachs writes about it. Um, and so 
one thing that might be an issue for all kids, but some more than others, is the expectation to sit still. Absolutely. Tell me about your thoughts on that. Yeah, it is just disregarding the reality that by and large, and again, we're, we're speaking in generalities here, by and large, boys have a harder time with the sheer number of hours that the typical school day requires them to sit still and be quiet and listen and not speak and not touch anything or anyone and not basically not be physical and very difficult. Um, I have heard, I think it's in Norway where they have a, a certain amount of time out of doors for recess and it's like two or three times what we have in the United States. And this helps with that. This helps, you know, they get out there, run around. Um, my eldest daughter has ADD and even though she's female, I've seen what it does to a child with ADD to have to sit still. So I organized things in at most 20 minute chunks. I allowed her to move while learning. When she moved while learning, she did a better job on remembering what she was supposed to do. She enjoyed it more and so forth. But for boys, this is amplified. And that's true across the grades, but it's especially true in elementary school. I personally think you could even make a solid case that boys should start school later, not just later in the day, but later in their age range. So, you know, a, a six-year-old who's ready to go to school at, you know, formal schooling, uh, who's female, your typical boy might not be ready till seven. And this is not, there's nothing wrong with him. And he could be just as bright, if not brighter, but it's just the physical development is, is different. So I, I feel pretty strongly about that. And it's something that I would advocate for. Um, I don't have sons, but I encourage mothers of sons to think about this, that any behavior, you know, things that you might have with your young son, um, is he getting enough movement and are they restricting him? Absolutely. Um, so you talk about how girls are developmentally ready to start school before boys, especially if it comes to sitting down, reading, writing, abstract concepts. I agree from, from the research I've been doing lately. There's a lot of research behind that. What do you think about this trend of kindergarten changing? It's my understanding that 30 plus years ago, kindergarten was about singing and dancing and playing and getting along and finger painting. And now they're teaching things in kindergarten that they used to teach in first grade, that there is that emphasis on reading and writing. And it's my understanding that boys are having a harder time with that. Then they're more likely to have behavioral issues or get diagnosed with ADHD or, you know, it sets them on this track where one of their early formative experiences is I'm a bad kid or I'm dumb, excuse me, or I can't keep up. Um, whereas if they had just waited until they were a little bit more developmentally ready to focus on those abstract concepts and those types of skills, then they, they would have been fine. What do you think about all that? I, I couldn't agree more. I think I, I, as I said, I, th I don't think any, I don't believe in compulsory schooling period, but let's say if you have it, it should never start before seven for anybody. And the idea that it's formal with formal, you know, lessons and things like that, um, that young, that young age, I think is absolutely wrong. And I know we hear a lot about, but internationally or the Chinese or whatever. Okay. Are you aware of how stressed out Chinese children are? <laughs> Do you understand? Like, like it's, 
first of all, and we're not China, and you know, we're not in competition. First of all, we're not the Borg. We're individual little humans, and they're not competing with people half a world away. They have a right, in my belief, to develop at their pace and not be either hindered or pushed to a point where they are so uncomfortable that they see learning as a chore. They no longer feel they own it. They feel like it's outside themselves. Somebody else owns it and all of the evaluation of it. And they start to internalize the, uh, you know, any failure to do what maybe Susie's doing just fine. Cause now they can compare themselves to other kids. Whereas if they were home, they wouldn't be doing that. And they feel terrible about themselves and where, and what's tragic to me is left alone. That same child might turn out to be a voracious reader at eight or nine. You know, just left to their own devices, surrounded by books, having someone read to them, having somebody to let them be who they are, run around and play, um, you know, tell them what's in books. Like I said, read to them and so forth, but not be like, and now we're going to sit down and do reading. I just think we make learning work instead of what it's supposed to be. Think about the last thing as an adult that you learned, that you taught yourself or that you set out, you know, this book, the, the, the Sachs book. I want to learn more about this. I'm going to sit and read this book or whatever. That's a joy. It's not work. You chose to do it. You devoured the book. You thought about it. So maybe to someone else it might be work, but it wasn't to you. Now you're a little kid and you went from like running around playing and everything's fun and life is beautiful to sit down, be quiet, do this thing. And you're only six. I just think it's way too young. Even in preschools, I'm seeing them drill the, the alphabet and do all this stuff. This isn't how parents parent. If you think about it, mom and dad, when you taught your kid to speak or you taught them to use a spoon, you didn't say, here, hold the spoon. Now hold the spoon. Like, come on. Nope. That's the wrong way. Hold the spoon. Hold the spoon. You're just like, hey, it's like this. I mean, you made a game out of it or if they didn't do it right, you're like, it's okay. We'll do it next time. There was more, there's more forgiveness. When you corrected their mistakes in speech, you corrected for meaning, not for pronunciation. All of these things come naturally to us as parents. And then it's like, an expert comes along and says, and now it's time for kindergarten. And we forget, you know, what was perfectly fine yesterday for a child to learn in this organic experiential way suddenly becomes like, oh no, I must not know what I'm doing. And you go take over and drill. And I just, I just object to it strongly. I think it's a very bad idea. Let's talk a little bit more about why you say schools are more geared toward girls, that they don't work as well with boys' learning styles? Mm -hmm. Well, there's the aforementioned movement component. Boys tend to be, speaking in generalities, more physical. Um, They do tend to be emotionally slower to mature. When they do physically mature, and again, they're somewhat behind girls in terms of their growth spurts, in terms of puberty, and so forth. That can be confusing for them. Um, So you have all these physical reasons. And then I would also add that boys tend to be more comfortable with a level of direct discourse that is frowned upon in the formal school setting. So what to them would be fine and, you know, appropriate way of speaking to each other, an appropriate way of speaking even to, you know, the girls, whatever, is, you know, they're told it's bad, it's rude, it's too direct or impolite, or they hurt someone's feelings. And so there's so many opportunities for them to step on toes 
and not be respected as just being different, as just having a different way of interacting. We Comedians joke about it all the time, that a guy can insult his best friend and they're fine the next day, whatever. But if you said something like that to your female friend, you wouldn't speak to her ever again. Well, now again, imagine you're a seven or eight year old boy and say like, why is your hair like that? <laughs> you know, or you might, you might blurt something out or say something and it comes naturally. And now they're chastised, they're scolded. And they probably didn't mean anything by it. It's just more natural way of dealing with other humans. And so the social and emotional standards, the, the social mores are more along the lines of what women would find acceptable. Most of the teachers in elementary school in particular are female and now increasingly also in middle school. So they're also not really given a chance to have adult role models during the day who are like them, are, are, are male. And I do think that's needed. You know, it's funny to me that we talk all the time about culturally relevant education and it's important the teacher look like you in terms of really superficial stuff like race. But when it comes to like, I'm male and my teacher's male, you know, I mean, that can be, or having access to a certain number of teachers who are, I think that's important. And we don't really talk about it very much. I don't think schools are a super hospitable place for typical male teachers either. We have the, you know, increased scrutiny on men that came about because of the fears of sexual impropriety and so forth over the years. So I think a lot of men are desperately afraid <laughs> to go into that. Um, they've been described so often as predatory that it seems scary to be around little kids, even though they might be absolutely wonderful elementary school teachers. I've known a few. Um, but so it's a female dominated space. Most of the people working there are women. Um, There's just so much feminine energy and feminine preferences that I, I think it's harder for a boy to find his place. And that's very superficial answer, I know, but that's kind of what I think about it. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you.
I think you brought up a good point in terms of how we treat aggression. So, you know, another sex difference between male typical and female typical aggression is that female typical aggression is covert. It's social, subtle, um, often including things that boys and men don't even pick up on, (laughs) Um, which can be refreshing, by the way, when you're a woman caught up in female drama and you turn to a, a, a male friend or partner and he's like, I don't know, (laughs) you know, Um, but, uh, you know, females, we tend to be more agreeable. We tend to be more sensitive to others' feelings, but that's also what makes us sensitive to um, aggressive undercurrents. And Mm -hmm. um, we're very nice to our girlfriends, but when feelings get hurt, it's forever. We don't forgive or forget easily. And then it's like, not only do I think she hates me, but I think everyone she knows hates me. I mean, that's female typical social drama um, Mm -hmm. and how aggression manifests, whereas how aggression typically manifests in males more commonly is that it's overt, it's physical as opposed to social or verbal, it is more competitive and playful, and it is easily gotten over. In fact, males do typically bond through the process of competing and fighting um, with one another. And of course, we're speaking in terms of general, you know, bell curves here. Of course, there are always outliers. Nobody's saying that there aren't. But in terms of generalities, I agree that how social relationships are treated in school is uh, very female-centric, you know, that, that conflict is taken very seriously, not as something that can be worked through. And there's very little room for aggression. And the truth is that we all have aggressive impulses and we need, Mm -hmm. you know, childhood is a time of playing with all of our impulses and interacting Mm -hmm. with the the world through our impulses and senses to figure out what works and how to channel those impulses. It's concerning that it seems like there's just no outlet for, um, boys to test out their aggressive drives um, that Mm -hmm. won't just be reprimanded. So sports are kind of that one outlet, but, you know, um, there's also something I learned that I thought was interesting in Leonard Sachs's book. Uh, One of them was that the visual systems are different in males and females. So um, we actually have two components to the visual system. One is more sensitive to color and texture, The other is perceptive of movement and direction. And females actually have more activity in color and texture perception. Males have more activity in movement and direction perception, better spatial Mm -hmm. awareness, right? Um, I had a a teacher in college who would give handouts and, and make this joke. He would be like, ladies, this is your lavender homework. Boys, it's your purple you know, he would make these jokes about how females have more language for color. And we actually have more activity in the visual system that perceives color. So no wonder. And so in Leonard Sachs's book, he talks about how even art in school um, is facilitated in a female-friendly way where they're always like, give us more color, give us more texture, show us a more expressive face about how that person is feeling. Whereas what boys are interested in, they're, they're more likely to have, you know, primary colors, and and there's certain things that would be boring from a female perspective, but they want to show movement. They want to show action. Mm -hmm. And um, so he recommends instead of telling a boy, give us more color, saying, 
what direction is that going? Are there movement lines or, you know, wind in the hair mm -hmm. or something that you could add um, to work with the boy? And that also includes things like crashes, right? Boys are going to be more interested in things that are kind of off-putting to our feminine sensibilities that we're like, ah, I don't mm -hmm. want to hear loud banging things, right? But um, action, including violence. And there is some fascinating data in this book on which boy behaviors that contain some violent or aggressive component to them are an actual indicator that this boy is at increased risk of violence towards self or others, and which aren't. And there are many that are not. And, and those are the expressions of that healthy aggression that they need help guiding healthy expressions of. So mm -hmm. then I wonder what happens if you just squash that impulse in every form that it takes for boys? If you're just no, 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 don't ever be aggressive in any way, then where does it go? I think that could be more concerning in the long run. Yeah, I think we may need to ponder whether we're creating ticking time bombs because, you know, anytime you repress your natural feelings or inclinations, for a long period of time, you end up with something not so good. Okay. You know, whether it's some you know, depression or whatever, but I, I do worry about boys in that respect. I also think that we have demonized some of the, the natural ways that boys express themselves like competition, for example, um, when there was a push towards, you know, everybody wins and there is no number one and nobody's the best. Nobody comes in first or, you know, we have to all have an equal outcome. This is, this is really, it's hard on everyone, I think. I don't think it's great for girls either, but I think it's especially difficult for boys. I think boys have a more natural inclination to want to be certain about the boundaries of things, to be, you know, have things very clear. Um, and they're not so clear. And when you add in what they now call restorative justice, where every dispute needs to be resolved in conversation and we're going to sit and try to make up and we're going to try to restore the relationship. There's, there's no respect for the fact that maybe there wasn't a relationship to restore. These people have a dispute. Maybe the best thing you can do is let them go off to the respective corners and vent their spleen and then never talk to each other again. So we don't seem to respect the, the child or the teen's own judgment about whether they do or don't want to be friends with someone, whether they do or don't want to resolve something. And I think it comes down harder on the boys than even on the girls, because as I said, girls are socialized, tend to be socialized to like, let's at least pretend to make up and they do a better job of it. Like you said, it's more passive. It's quieter. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, then we're fine. And then, you know, quietly, passively, they go off and gossip or do something else. But boys are more inclined to be like, I don't even want to talk to this guy, like ever. Like, why are you making me sit and, and restore this or talk about this? Sometimes I really believe it can make it worse. You're sort of like forcing them into a relationship they don't want to be in and they will blame the other for needing to do this activity. And so now you're giving them a further reason to be angry at the other person. I just, I just think that we're imposing some really strange, untested, um, like, questionable processes on kids instead of just being very clear. We don't punch people. We don't do this. This is what we do not do on the school grounds. And that's how it is. And, you know, I just think it, it more negatively impacts boys. Um, you go one of two directions. Either you go to the zero tolerance policies, which 
don't take individual differences into account, or you go with the restorative justice policies, which make everybody have to sit down and have a, a confab about it. And that doesn't work either. So I think we've, we've got an impulse going in the school system to standardize things. And we tend to pick solutions that we can use across the board, or we argue for them to be used across the board. And I rarely see people saying, how can we not do that? How can we be effective, be fair, and still tr and, and treat people differently? Maybe treating people differently is the fair way to go. Maybe that's the right thing to do, using judgment as adults. And what you're just describing about the kind of forced conflict resolution, it left me wondering, what about just civility? Because that's all you actually need to have as an adult. And I, I feel like actual civility is, it's such an easy baseline and yet it's missing from so much of adult society. I feel like the lesson there isn't let's hash this out and have this lengthy conversation that's beyond our ability to focus on when we're triggered because our, we're flooded with stress hormones. We're not even in a state of mind to concentrate on that conversation. But I think the lesson yeah. is, okay, so you two don't like each other. Now, here's your opportunity to figure out how to peacefully coexist in a world in which there's someone you don't like. Because that's exactly. the situation you're going to encounter. That's that's what you're going to encounter in co-working situations, right? There are going to be many situations in your life where you do have the freedom to never see that person again. Great. There's also going to be situations where you don't. So how can you figure out how to just have a modicum of decency in a public space and not get wrapped up in drama? I love that you said peaceful coexistence because how many stories do we hear lately where people are like beside themselves because a total stranger wouldn't accommodate them with something they is that is a little bit of an imposition, you know, it's like too, a mm -hmm. lot to ask, you know, and I, we are, we keep talking about, you know, there's so much entitlement. There's such an, a sense that, you know, people shouldn't be allowed to just peacefully coexist with you. They must accommodate you. They must validate you. They must celebrate you. All of these things. Well, that's starting in our schools. And that is a direct result of this kind of approach to social and emotional learning. That if you are, what we see now in our school system is a push to make children other centric and not self-possessed, self-aware, personally responsible. It used to be back when the concept of social emotional learning going into schools first came about, okay, we're talking at least 10 years ago, if not longer, probably more like 20 years ago. Um, the idea was to remediate for those kids, as we talked about, who have chaotic backgrounds, who have a situation where the parents are not there doing the parenting that teaches the social emotional skills. Most kids learn these skills at home from their parents, from other role models and their family, from their friends. But if you are in a situation where that's just not happening or you have a kind of a learning disability or a, a personality challenge, okay, then the school might need to have some systems in place. It used to be the school counselor working potentially with the school psychologist might identify social emotional learning challenges, pull the child out or deal with things with the parents and so forth. Well, at some point it was decided, nope, let's just preempt this. We can prevent all problems. We can fix before they're broken 
And I'm always wary of those kinds of approaches, especially with children, because there are unintended consequences of trying to fix that which is not broken. You are sending messages without realizing it. And so what by going in, especially, you know, as young as kindergarten and saying, this is how let's role model, let's role play all these different interactions that we need to like everyone to be friends with everyone. You end up driving that passive aggressive tendency to keep my real feelings secret even deeper because everything's exposed now. You take the aggressive tendencies and you make them bigger because you're you know repressing from an earlier age across a you know, wider population. So what we have now is we have a, a, an orientation towards group identity, group membership, and a kind of you know, repressive tolerance that says you, the individual and your boundaries and your needs are nothing compared to what you owe the group, whether the group is your classroom full of students, the school building, you know, the adults in the school building, whatever it is, you have to go past tolerating, like peacefully coexisting with those people you don't like. You must, must do your best every single day to be friends with them, to ally with them, to support them, to validate them. And it's a lot to ask. It's just too much. We as adults wouldn't tolerate it. If your boss came to you tomorrow and said, it's not enough for you to peacefully coexist with your coworkers and be civil and do what's asked of you. You guys need to go to lunch together. I don't ever see you go to lunch together. That's a problem. You're not a team player. And you know what? Why aren't you guys friends and inviting each other to your birthday parties and so forth? You'd be like, buddy, get out of my life. You know, like we just don't get along. I mean, we're doing our jobs. Leave us alone. You wouldn't put up with that. But kids are forced to put up with that every single day in our schools right now. You're helping me see connections I hadn't seen before. And it gives me a tremendous amount of compassion for people who are being schooled in this way. It's like, no wonder these people join Twitter mobs and go after people they don't like. It's because their whole life, they may have never been told, it's okay that that you don't like her. You just here's how to separate yourself as much as possible. And here's how to interact when you have to be around her so that you're not I have an making anecdote. things worse for yourself. I, I before you share your anecdote. anecdote okay. Um, you know, what you described, we have a term in psychology for that as a psychological defense. It's called reaction formation. So the, um, you know, when you have an intolerable and negative feeling towards someone and it violates your sense of who you are or what your morals are. Like, let's say you really don't like this woman in your church, but you're a devout Christian who supposedly loves everyone. Like, then reaction formation is a psychological defense by which you kind of double down on acting as if you feel the opposite. So it might be like you go out of your way to be super sweet to her. You bring her gifts. You invite her to your parties. Meanwhile, you never liked her. And this is all completely optional. You're just making your own problems in your own head, right? So reaction formation, I know, is an individual phenomenon, but it's kind of like it's being enforced as a coping tool for everyone. And and that just really grates on my nerves. Now, please go ahead and share your anecdote. No, I was was just going to say that this, when my daughter was 10 years old, and she was in school in a, in a public charter school. Um, there was a young boy who followed her everywhere, boy in her class, just followed her all around, would pull a chair up when she was talking privately with one of her friends or working on a project with one of her friends. 
and we just, you know, stick his head in and just start talking to them and like, what are you doing? What's going on? Whatever. And be everywhere she was. And she tried many times to just physically distance herself at first. That didn't work. Then she tried to say, you know, we're having a private conversation, whatever. That didn't work. And ultimately, she had to ask him more directly, like, can you just leave us alone? Okay. And as I, you know, I believe her that she was as civil as she could have been, given that this person would just not leave her alone. He went to the teacher, the guidance counselor, whoever it was, and complained and said that my daughter had been mean to him or whatever. And rather than counsel him what you just said and say, you know, I'm sorry your feelings were hurt, but not everybody is going to want to be your friend. And maybe you should just give her some space and just, you know, find another friend or whatever, whatever you would say to a child that's complaining that someone doesn't want to be their friend. Because that happens in life. Not everybody wants, even if she'd been mean, let's say worst case, she'd been like, get away from me, you freak. Okay. Which I wouldn't approve of just to be clear. But even then you would hope the counselor would say, that's really unfortunate. And I'm sorry that happened. And maybe I'll speak to her separately, but what are you going to do? Right. Instead, my daughter was called in sort of ambushed. This little boy was in the room. She was called in and sat down and sort of in an accusatory fashion. Is it true that you won't be his friend? And she's like, yeah, you know, like just trying to get out of this. Well, everybody in the school and everybody's friends with everybody and we don't exclude anyone and we have to include everyone. So it's wrong of you to exclude him from your social interactions and make him feel excluded. Yikes. And even brought in and even brought into it that, well, he's diabetic. And so he, like, this is relevant. And my daughter's like, so <laughs> like, what does that have to do with he's an annoying person, you know? And I picked her up from school that day. She was so angry. Just so you could just like, she was like hitting the seat and just letting it all out physically. Like why? And this is totally unfair. And it just furious. And she told me what happened. And like I always used to do, I would I called up the counselor and say, can you help me understand what went down? Like what happened here? Because I have this story, right? I'm going to call him, all right, you know? So this is going on. And to my shock and horror, she's absolutely, yes, that's exactly what happened. This happened to me many times, by the way, with my children, where I would call up giving the benefit of the doubt that I've misunderstood something. And the teacher or whoever was like, no, actually, they, she accurately explained what happened and this is why. And this woman, by profession, was a therapist who is now working as a school counselor. And I just was speechless, absolutely speechless in the era of Me Too, in the era of personal boundaries are important, and all these things. Is a person telling a 10 year old girl that she may not maintain personal boundaries with a 10 year old boy? And I was just speechless. I like, I don't even know what to say. So that's just one anecdote. And having spoken to my daughter, you know, she said that was common. That was, you were not permitted to discern. And at what point does the boy ever learn that this is not how to make friends? It's certainly not how to get a girlfriend. Um, You know, there is a time for telling someone in a certain context that their behavior is creepy whether you use that word or not. Um, Part of growing up is learning to see ourselves from the outside, that socialization process where our sense of identity uh, internally matches our sense of identity externally. Right now, there are people who have this idea that you can just come up with an idea of your identity 
and then tell everyone, and they're just supposed to participate, that that is your identity. But that's not developmentally how we form an identity. We form it through negotiating with the world. We test out different ways of trying to socialize, and we get feedback, whether that feedback is explicit, like, I I don't want to be your friend, or whether that feedback is, you know, just that we have to learn how to take a hint. Um, and that boy's behavior is is not the kind that would naturally make friends. So how does that help him in the long run? How does that help him to socialize, to be able to make friends, to be able to get a girlfriend in a non-creepy way as he's older? It doesn't help him, but it does set up a, a concerning dynamic about that message, especially being sent to girls who are already more agreeable and who are physically weaker and, you know, a whole lot more likely to get sexually assaulted, um, you know, to send us that message that if you don't like someone that's a, that says something bad about you and you need to get over that and you needed to include, I mean, I, it almost helps me make sense of concerning dynamics I've witnessed in girls a little bit older than that who, you know, were pursued by guys that they never had any interest in, but still felt bad about turning down. And, you know, maybe if I hadn't been there to say it's okay to turn him down, something could have happened that she didn't want. Right. It's also that they're not learning that you shouldn't want other people to be uncomfortable around you. Even if you don't feel like you've done anything wrong, if somebody is uncomfortable in your presence, then you know, that you can say, well, that's on them or whatever. Uh, not really. <laughs> I mean, you know, it really, it, it depends. But for the most part, no, it's not. If you're both equally allowed to share that space. So let's say, for example, what happens in older grades, middle school and above, although now they go all the way down to elementary school where it's anyone can use any bathroom at the school that they want. And if you're in an environment where that boy, if she were still there, he could follow her right into the bathroom. And what's going to stop that from occurring then again when he's older and then when he's a little older and he's bigger and he's stronger and so forth. And he has never been told no. He has never been told that it's perfectly okay for the girl to say, back off, get away from me. And he decides that now is the time where he's going to assert himself and, you know, get good and mad about it. Remember, he was physically pulling the chair up. He was leaning in. He was in her physical space as it was at 10. So if that's the message consistently delivered across the board, as you said, you're doing both of them a disservice, but you run into real safety risks as they get older. Um, And making people feel vulnerable when they shouldn't have to is abuse, in my opinion. I mean, I think it's really unfair. And so it is a weird, it's it's sort of a weird thing that like we're going to arrange things around what seems more comfortable for girls But then we're going to impose upon girls and take advantage of that trait when it suits us. It's like the whole system is confused about what it's trying to do. And so I come back to what I said at the outset of the podcast, that it seems organized around what makes the adults involved in it feel good or comfortable at the time, at the moment, in the scenario, and does not ask enough questions about what's the message to the child? Where is the child right now in their development? What is the project they're working on in life at this stage? And what do we want them to learn about other people and about us as we're teaching them? 
there, there just is not enough self-reflection in the system. There's zero self-criticism in the system. And I don't think you can have a successful system of any kind when it is not oriented towards the end users or the recipients of the system's efforts. Those people are going to almost by, by definition be victims of it, be chewed up and spit out because you're just not focusing on them. They're just raw material coming in to the factory. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Well, I don't have time to go as in depth with middle and high school as we did with elementary. Um, you did say something poignant earlier when you were talking about middle and high school. You talked about that natural phase of pushing and pulling. So the ambivalent attachment the phase of of growing up, um, you know, developmentally, we call that the the second rapprochement, the first one being in, in toddlerhood when you first learn the meaning of the word no and want to experience your independence for the first time. So teenagers can be much like toddlers in that they still need you and they're not fully grown, but there's a lot of pushing away trying to assert their independence. Um, so you said that increasingly you're concerned that uh, teachers are sort of manipulating and triangulating that natural developmental phase. They're, whatever the teacher's own agenda is in terms of their political beliefs or what have you, they'll sort of be the other party that the kid is triangulated with and you know position themselves as, I'm different from your parents. I'm cool. I'm hip. I'm progressive. I'm a safe space, whatever this and that, um, which is, I think, disastrous for mental health. I mean, it would be equally irresponsible for a therapist to do that. You have to see both sides. You have to see that, of course, the kid is pushing their parents away and they're immature and they're surrounded by the culture of their peers. So they're probably going to do that in some dramatic ways. They're going to be hyperbolic about whatever it is they dislike about their parents, um, especially in a culture where kids are taught that it's it's cool to have mental health problems. It's, you know, you get a lot of sympathy if you frame yourself as the victim of abuse. So I've certainly seen cases where ordinary family conflict in a safe home with loving parents was framed as, you know, some horrible situation at home. And then the teachers just, not only do they buy into that without question. They kind of exaggerate it or they encourage it. And that's not a healthy developmental process because what adults need to be doing is kind of recognizing in the child in that context. Like, of course you're splitting. Splitting being, you know, breaking people into to good and bad. Of course you're intensifying things and feeling a lot of distress about your family. But also you still need them and they're your people. And no matter where you get to in life, you're going to have to integrate where you come from. And if you're concerned with mental health, 
uh, it's generally better for most people's mental health to have relationships with their families, except in cases of extreme abuse. But, you know, if you're a teacher and you actually think there's extreme abuse going on, well, then you're a mandated reporter and you should contact Child Protective Services. But, you know, short of that, um, I guess I, I summed up my own take on it, but I, I had wanted to to kind of give that back to you because you'd brought it up earlier. Yeah, well, you, you summed it up very well. That's exactly uh, what's going on. It's triangulation. And the teachers are behaving more like a peer. And the difference mm-hmm. is a same age peer, uh, you know, you would expect to do it. Even the child in question expects them to do it. Okay. They don't expect them to question what they're saying about their parents. Um And you don't really hold the same age peer responsible for either mandatory reporting if they think there really is abuse or for nudging them back to work on the relationship with their family. I think that teachers are overstepping. I think in many respects, uh, we might be dealing with some projection and working out of their own unresolved issues about their parents um, through these children, which is its own form of, you know, dysfunction. Um, And I think they have an ethical responsibility to do their level best to encourage the child to pursue whatever avenue they need to pursue to strengthen the family bond, you know, give them their argument. Let's say the mom is overbearing. Let's say dad is absent, emotionally absent, whatever. Then that's that's an unfortunate situation. There's help for that that can work with them as a family. But the most the teacher should do is say, if you need to talk to somebody about how you can talk to your parents, to get closer to your parents. Like you said, they're your people. You're going to need them. Um, You should really, you and they should be trying to work on this, but that's really not my role. And you should be bowing out. I think of, did you ever see the film version of Matilda, the Roald Dahl story? No. It's really wonderful. There's a teacher in that. Her name is Miss Honey. And Miss Honey is a teacher we all wish we had. We all wish we could be. We all wish our children had. But Matilda has a very dysfunctional home. Her parents are terrible people, objectively terrible people. They don't appreciate her, and she's a genius. So her teacher recognizes the genius in her, but also recognizes that something very wrong is going on at home. She does not insert herself into that situation and say, come be with me and I'll be your new mommy, which we're actually seeing teachers do right now without checking the facts. Miss Honey went to the home. Now, I'm not saying I recommend you go to somebody's house. That could be dangerous. But I'm saying she still took it upon herself as a teacher to say, this is a wonderful little girl. I want her to have a wonderful family experience if it's at all possible. And if there's anything I can do to bridge the gap in communication between the family and the child, then I'll see what I can do. And then failing that, she then you know supported Matilda the best she could. But I think it's a wonderful film example of a better way to go about it if you were to go about it. And even even given that this was a truly abusive situation. So I think they are romanticizing their roles, putting themselves in a position of a kind of a savior, doing a lot of working out their own demons and ultimately practicing without a license. I mean, if we're really going to get right down to it, they're doing your job without being qualified to do your job and not doing the job they were hired to do. Yeah. And on that note, I am so glad for all of my training in boundaries and all of the intense uh, 
requirements of my field in boundaries. You know, I worked with foster kids and I know very well that feeling of, oh, I just want to take you home. I mean, when you're working with a, a little kid who is in foster care and, you know, dealing with whatever circumstances led to that, that they're the most vulnerable people on the planet. And of course they pull on your heartstrings. And, you know, I remember that feeling of like, oh, can I just adopt him? But no, I can't. I can't adopt him because I'm a therapist legally. I can't do that. Right. And I'm, you know, as, as hard as that was on my heart, I'm also glad I went through it because if you can maintain your boundaries in that situation, then you can maintain your boundaries in any situation. And I think I've gotten so used to having the boundaries that I have as a therapist um, that the boundaries people have in any other field start to feel weird to me. Like the idea that like a massage therapist can be friends with their client. You know, even that to me is like <gasps> friends with your client. I can't, you can't imagine, you know, and it's like, no, it's not that strict anywhere else. And in most cases, it doesn't have to be. It's not required because other arts aren't as delicate as the art of, you know, healing someone's psyche. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, absolutely, teachers are putting themselves in the role of therapists without going through the training of learning to recognize their countertransference, their savior complex, learning that we have strict requirements about boundaries and that we have those for a reason. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And they, I really... Would love to see more people in your field assert that authority and assert that so that teachers can resume their proper place. Um, even though I think, as I said, that there are many, many problems with the system, I think that all by itself would be a huge improvement <laughs> um, because you know we've really got to reclaim those boundaries. There's a group called Courage is a Habit that puts out visual explainers and infographics. I think they're coming out with one this week that shows the standard for school counselors from 1998, the ethical standard side by side with the standard today. And it is so dramatically different. It's jarring. And the one from 1998 closely mirrors what you just said, as far as, you know, the, where you draw the line and what you talk about and what you don't talk about. And the one from today is uh, literally about shaping the child. So not just, I get to talk with them about whatever, but I'm going to use this encounter to shape their view of the entire world. Mm. And that's a real problem in the upper mm. grades in particular. Yeah. Okay. So coming around to that, you had said earlier that in high school, um, you believe high school teachers and, and to a degree middle school as well are kind of trying to teach their students to be activists. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about that as you were saying it, I was thinking about sort of the psychological dangers of believing as a teenager that you have the power to change the world and the obligation to change the world because you haven't actually learned how the world works yet. I mean, I say this as someone who was an activist teenager at a time that that wasn't what teachers were. Teachers weren't trying to make me an activist. I just I was a very reactionary kid who came from a lot of trauma and got kind of grandiose in reaction to the trauma and was like, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to solve the problems that led to me being bullied in the first place. And that means we have to do away with the police and we have to, you know, I mean, I thought I knew everything when I was 16. I mean, most 16 year olds think a lot of them are know-it-alls, but, but 
this idea that, you know, as soon as you're on the verge of becoming a global citizen and, and, you know, an adult capable of voting, as soon as you're nearing that time in life, you should have a strong stance on things. I think it's, it seems disastrous to me to do anything that encourages the hubris that naturally comes with adolescence. Like, it seems like that should be a time of humbling kids as to how big the world is, how much more they have to learn, and making sure they get some life experience before they go thinking that they have the answers to problems. Well, you're correct, but that's not how the vast majority of teachers see it. That's not how they are taught to see it. They're taught their role as a political role. They're taught that they will not be successful in their role if they do not activate their students, if they do not liberate their students. So we have the postmodernist approach to teaching as liberation from Paulo Freire. Um, and all of education is about liberation. So the goal then is to make the child critically conscious of the oppression that is the world. Like if they learn nothing else about the world that other than it is oppressive, if they carry around like optometrist set of lenses to view every single thing in the world through that oppression, power, you know, privilege dynamic, then the teacher will have been successful in making them critically conscious. And then once the presumption is once they're critically conscious of all this oppression, they will naturally want to liberate themselves and rise up and foment revolution and change the world. Because the change isn't from X to Y, it's just destroy X. So when we say they don't know anything about the world, they don't know how it works, they don't know what's broken, what's not broken, that's irrelevant. Their only presumption there to have is that it's, it's irredeemable and needs to be destroyed. And that from the ashes of that destruction will be utopia or whatever. But they don't need to know how it works because it's bad. It's just bad. Do I need to know how, you know, the broken thing worked if I have no intention of fixing it? No, you don't. And meanwhile, and these so, are people who can't even, they don't even know how to do their laundry. No. They and, don't know and the first it, thing about teachers living. themselves don't know about the world they're teaching to the students. In many cases, they went from high school to college right back to school. It's been a circle. And this is a flaw in the system in that we have a system that teaches and it produces teachers like this, where it's all kind of like a self-licking ice cream cone. You know, the government supplies the, the, the universities that feed the teachers back into the schools and then the schools produce more teachers and it just goes in this big cycle. And it doesn't take long. I mean, one generation and you've got rid of all the old teachers who might think a different way, not the postmodernist way, and the vast majority of the new teachers coming in, uh, think of them as fossils, dinosaurs, et cetera, and that they're doing the best thing ever. They're liberating these. They sincerely believe it. That's mm -hmm. the thing is it's not, they're not devious. They're not sinister. They're not evil. I mean, I think what they're doing is evil, but these are people who sincerely believe what they believe very much like a religious person sincerely believes that what they believe is right or a member of a cult believes what they believe is right. It's a belief though. It's a belief. It's not, grant. once you start asking questions about how it works and why they're doing it, it all begins to fall apart. What I'm saying is the system doesn't ask those questions because what this, the project the system is working on is different than what parents think it is. So if you thought 
I'm sending my child to school so they can become an educated person and a you know well-adjusted, self-actualized, personally responsible adult. That's not what the school's working on. They want them to become a critically conscious, politically active young adult voting a very specific way. Whether they know anything or not is secondary. And they're now at least admitting it. Now when you when you pin people down in the education world about reading and math and so on, many of them now will say to you, well, what good is that in an oppressive world? What good will that be if they're still oppressed? If they learn those skills, those are the skills of the oppressor. So they're admitting that's We're secondary. Damned. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, I, I try to I try to focus on solutions. So my, my solution right, let's, is- Right, let's go there. Don't participate. I mean, we still do have the freedom to not play. And I, I get a lot of pushback as people say, but I have to work. I can't homeschool, whatever. But the beautiful thing about the same modern life that is kind of making our schools not work is that we are more connected using technology than ever before. We have a wider variety of creative ways of getting the job done, so to speak, of connecting with other people who could help us teach, who could help us just physically take care of our children while we go to work. Because again, that's a childcare problem. That's not an education problem. Um, so we, we the, the only requirement is that parents try really hard to step out of the paradigm that education equals school. And school looks like, you know, the building, eight to three, these people with degrees and so forth and so on. If you can let that go, and reformulate your philosophy of education and what it is you want your child's childhood to be like, what kind of person you would like them to be in their own right, what opportunities you would like them to have for personal growth and so forth, and then start thinking about what kind of environment creates that. And then just as you did when they were three and tried to figure out what kind of environment do I want them to be in when I go to work when they're three, find the version of that for when they're, you know, six and eight and 10 and so forth. What do you do in the summer? So solve the problem that you have to solve. Don't try to recreate the thing you're trying to get away from. And I think you'll find it's actually easier than, than you thought. And you might even give your child a gift of community because school is not community. And that's one of its other problems. It's a forced community. It's not an organic community. It's not People don't genuine. They don't automatically care about each other just because they're forced into a building with each other. But if you work on creating that little community of five or six families, or people that you know from your neighborhood, or people that you know from your church, or from this club that you belong to, or whatever, um, you are giving your child a priceless gift. You're role modeling making real friends. You're role modeling picking and choosing people who val who who express your values, who support your values. That is probably one of the most valuable gifts you can ever give a child is how do I form connections in this world to get my needs met, whether they're, you know, tactical needs, like who's going to watch my kid from eight to, eight to five, or who knows how to do math that I don't know how to do. Okay. Or who can help me fund this? I'll take care of your kid on the Saturday so you can go do whatever. And will you take care of my kid during the week? You, you do things that are actually quite old fashioned. We talk about it takes a village or whatever. You're resurrecting some of the beautiful, wonderful things we've lost to modern society. And you can use the internet to do it. It's so, so great. Like you can use modern tech to recreate the, the old fashioned style of community and togetherness that we lost in part because of tech. 
So I, I tend to be very optimistic about that. Well, you're very inspiring, Deb. I'm, I'm grateful that you're able to so quickly and succinctly wrap it up on a positive note. So, um, and you have a ton more resources out there. This is really just the tip of the iceberg of what you've learned and what you're sharing with people. So where can people find your work? So I'm on YouTube at The Reason We Learn. I'm also on Substack at The Reason We Learn. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I have a The Reason We Learn Twitter, but I, I do most of my tweeting at Deb underscore Philman, and that's F-I-L-L, man. And um, I'm working on a website, but it's not yet built. So, I, but like, I really do want parents to feel inspired and feel hopeful because ultimately the thing that matters is your relationship with your child. That's first and foremost. If they are 10 and not reading yet because you pulled them out of school to figure stuff out, that's okay. They'll be okay. It's okay. Everything is going to be okay, provided you put that relationship first. I feel very, very strongly about that. And I just want people not to feel doomed because you're not a prisoner. They're very, well, there are like a tiny handful of people who might be prisoners to the system because of court order, but that's very small handful, mm. very small. Thank you for those words of encouragement. And uh, for people who prefer to just listen, uh, The Reason We Learn is also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, yes. and wherever you get your podcasts too, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Deb, well, thank, thank you so much. much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.